0: Hello and welcome to The Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV and broadcast on this Thursday, August the 10th. My name is Freddie Gray and I will be your host today. On the show this week, Vladimir Putin may or may not be winning his war against Ukraine, but is he winning the bigger spiritual war that he is waging against the West? Lionel Shriver has written about that subject in the magazine this week, and I'll be talking to her as well as the writer Rob Henderson. And speaking of spiritual wars, the cover of The Spectator this week, here it is, um, is about the war on countryside pursuits. William Moore, The Spectator's William Moore, has written the piece, uh, and I'll be talking to him about the ongoing lawfare against hunting, shooting and fishing. And then we will turn our attentions towards America and talk about the bubbling story that is Hunter Biden and his dodgy past. I'll be talking to Ben Schreckinger of Politico about that ongoing scandal. And then we will come back to Britain and ask the important question what is the matter with e bikes? Peter Hitchens has written a tirade against. Electric bikes and a bit against e scooters as well. Um, And he'll be joined by Henry Mance, who's an e bike fan. Uh, And Peter's been quite rude about Henry. So we'll have to see what those two have to say to each other. And finally, we're going to talk about sourdough. Julie Bindle, who normally writes about feminism and very important topics, has written an extremely popular piece on The Spectator's website about how much she dislikes sourdough bread. I'm a bit of a sourdough fan, so um, stay tuned for that clash. But before we get going, uh, I'd like to give you a quick reminder to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You will not regret subscribing to our YouTube channel. To do that, you click the subscribe button at the bottom of your screen, and also tap the bell icon to make sure you get reminders and never ever miss an episode. Now, Vladimir Putin is selling his war in Russia as a war just not against the Ukraine, but against a spiritually decadent and bankrupt West, a Western world that we all live in, that is obsessed with gender debates, the denial of biological reality, and drag queens and LGBTQ issues, and so on. Lionel Shriver, our brilliant columnist, has a column in this week where she says the problem here is that Vladimir Putin has a point. Uh, Lionel joins me now uh, alongside the writer, Rob Henderson. Lionel, why does Vladimir Putin have a point?
1: Uh, Well, if nothing else, we are obsessing about things that are in the big picture, small. And um, so it's distracting us from, solving bigger problems. Uh, But I would also maintain that something like the uh, transgender movement is significant. It doesn't pertain to that many people, although it does affect the way our children are being educated. But its significance really has to do with the denial of reality. And when you start denying reality, uh, well, there's no natural limit, is there? um I mean if I were this if I were the former Soviets um I couldn't come up with anything better than the package of obsessions that we've come up with and in the column I mean I which I have to admit is something of a rant <laughs> um it's 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 a set of um, of of positions and attitudes that really come up come down to uh, a self-dislike a kind of burgeoning fifth column within the west that is destroying itself and you know one of um, honestly one of those elements is the obsession with net zero which uh, is looking as if it's going to be quite a minority um, uh, obsession Especially when it comes down to actually doing something about it rather than talking. Talk is cheap, but if only the West really gets on board, even assuming that all the the climate change uh, activists are are correct, you know, it's just, all the sacrifice is not going to make any difference. And and again, you know, if the Russians were to come up with uh, an ideology that would be perfectly designed to impede and even defeat the West, this is perfect. You know, we're busy trying to convert to a technology we don't even have yet really. And to, uh, you know, make everything electric before we actually have the means of generating that electricity, it's completely insensible. And 84% of the Uh, of the world's energy is still based on fossil fuels. And we're acting as if, you know, virtually tomorrow, we can live without them. Um, Just across the board, you know, uh, Freddie, you sent me a really interesting clip uh, of uh, a Soviet dissident who defected in 1985, talking about how, the KGB primarily uh, tries to had been trying to subvert the U.S. not through spying, but through um, ideological corruption, and it's almost as if that's what they've been doing. I mean, <laughs> I I feel as if you know, I I calling it woke now is insufficient. We're all sick of the word anyway. Um, And it's just too small and too cute. This is something deep and terrible. I mean, this whole thing of having rejected meritocracy and and now awarding uh, all kinds of positions to people just because of what race or sex or uh, sexual uh, orientation they have. I mean, that's that is a recipe for self-destruction. Yes. And, Rob, it's not
0: just uh, Russia, is it? I mean, a lot of other countries are starting to see the West, uh, America, uh, and its allies in this way. Um, uh, China uh, does to a certain extent. The BRIC countries do. And, in fact, a lot of these countries in their various international conferences and so on talk about uh, a geopolitical tipping point um, where American hegemony is coming to an end and we're moving into a multilateral world. And it's obvious to them that uh, the culture wars, if you like, are a sign of um, Western weakness um, and indeed that they may they may even be trying at some level to stoke it. Have you seen any, any evidence of, of other countries trying to stoke the culture wars in order to prove that the West is in decline?
2: Uh, sure. I mean, there have been some interesting pieces, uh, especially during the, the riots and the demonstrations of 2020 of... Uh, China uh, developing bots and hiring individuals to post online on social media accounts to stoke uh, a, a contentious debate and, and to troll people and to essentially uh, uh, sort of cultivate hostility and animosity uh, between Americans. And this is, this is in their interest to do so. I mean, one of the things that, that Lionel pointed out in her column, uh, which, I, which I found fascinating, uh, was the, the body positivity point I mean, this is something that I, this is, this has been, this finding has been shown uh, in in multiple outlets. The New York Times recently covered this, but I'm still shocked at how little attention it has received, which is that the Pentagon recently released a survey showing that eight out of 10 young Americans are ineligible to enlist in the military, primarily due to issues of obesity, physical and mental health issues, criminal records, and so on. So if 80% of young people aren't eligible to enlist, I mean, that in itself shows a sort of significant cultural decline, and we seem to not be so interested in what's going on with with young people uh, if we are to go to, in, in, to enter some kind of conflict with Russia or any other country, uh, whether to support Ukraine or, or anyone else. Um, it seems that we should be uh, focusing on what has happened uh, to young people, and instead, we'd rather talk about body, body positivity and some of the other issues that Lionel points out.
0: Lionel, I was speaking to uh, uh, an admiral in the French Navy recently who was quite concerned. He wasn't a sort of uh, right-wing lunatic by any means, but he was quite concerned about young people in France and he talked about French people, uh, he talked about British people and Americans too and uh, a lack of willingness if it came to it to actually fight. Um, Do you think this taps into what we're talking about here that Western people have sort of, given up on our own culture or on, on our on what we are meant to believe in
1: i think uh, when the war in ukraine started uh, there were some polls done of americans anyway uh, and whether or not they would fight for their country and the figures were appalling I and mean, very few um and that's what we're talking about a kind of this package of of distractions as well as, uh, self-doubting attitudes. There it's, was a recent, if I can just
2: it, say there was a recent yes. uh, finding from Jean Twenge's, uh, new book generations, she outlines the sort of characteristic differences of the generations in the U S and one shocking finding that she pointed out, and I wrote about this in the free press, which is, uh, something like 47% of Gen Z, uh, young adults say that, the, that America's founders are more accurately described as villains rather than heroes. Now, I know that uh, you know, if, you're, if you're talking to British people, maybe they have some, some interesting thoughts about that, but at least you know, young Americans thinking that the founders of their own country, you know, nearly half of young Americans viewing their, the, the founders of their own country this way, I think this is indicative of something clearly going wrong with, with, with the youth.
1: Yeah, there's, it's a deep demoralization and you can trace it back a couple of generations. It's been going on for a long time, but rather than just run its course, it seems to be gathering steam and it's deadly, uh, on it, on every level. And I, I, and I think that there's very, you know, there's very little to substitute, to substitute for it, uh, in a positive way. You know, all, all of the passions are negative. Uh, they're all filled with dread, uh, I don't even think that there is a, a a consuming, vivid vision of a an ideal future that is powering younger people. You know, the, a utopianism, uh, uh, where we're all going to be equal and there will be no more racism and and there is no, there are no gender, there's no gender roles, and we're all just ourselves. I mean, you can kind of put together that picture, but basically what's what's in these people's head as far as I can tell is very dark, very dark, nothing but dread and also of uh, of uh, an eagerness to put off adulthood and of course fighting your for your country that's the ultimate in adulthood uh, the weird embrace of of not just of mental illness itself, but, of, but an eagerness to have a diagnosis of some sort. And the competition over who, effectively who's weaker, uh, which is what the whole victimhood thing is about. Who can be weaker, who can be more oppressed and therefore more powerless. Uh, I don't think all, all young people are like this, I, I, I don't. But we don't hear from the people who aren't like this very much. Yes, uh, Rob, I
0: was going to ask you, to what extent are we just beating up ourselves unnecessarily? Because uh, while there's no doubt that Vladimir Putin wants to stoke up uh, the culturals, wants to stoke up the resentment of social conservatives and Christians in, in Western countries, uh, he's not the ideal ambassador of uh, sort of the moral good. I mean, it's perfectly obvious to most Russians with a brain that he is himself uh, a, a corrupt and uh, almost certainly murderous figure.
2: Right, well, just just as sometimes good people have bad ideas, sometimes bad people can make good points. And I think in this case, in this instance, uh, yeah, he's, he's made some astute critiques uh, Often your enemies, your adversaries can be quite good at pointing out your shortcomings and your inadequacies in ways that friends can't or won't because your friends have an interest in flattering you or buttering you up or perhaps overlooking uh, some of your flaws. Whereas your enemies can be very good at pinpointing uh, where you're coming up short. And in this case, yeah, he has pointed out uh, a lot of flaws that, that you know, Westerners themselves have been speaking about for a long time. I mean, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if Putin himself was sort of reading uh, a lot of the conservative column, columnists and commentators and just generally social critics across the, the social spectrum in order to understand what's going on in America and, and in the West more generally and, and sort of harvesting the most astute critiques. Um, and yeah, as, as Lionel pointed out in that piece, there are so many things going, going wrong uh, in the country and primarily seems to be led by members of the cultural and economic elite. I coined this term a few years ago uh, luxury beliefs ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower classes and there there are a variety of different examples uh, some that Lionel had pointed out body positivity was one that we had mentioned earlier the net zero issue um, a lot of the the uh, attacks and critiques on on merit as well all of these things do serve to make the people who are at or near the apex of the social ladder look interesting, it you know makes them look uh, unconventional and gives them, uh, a, it confers a sort of status to them among their peers. Uh, but ultimately when these ideas uh, spread throughout society or when they're implemented into policy, uh, these can have detrimental effects, uh, not only for the people within the country, but, but perhaps, I mean, ultimately could potentially destabilize the world order if we're unable to stand up to uh, villains like Putin.
1: Also, I'd add that uh, this whole miasma of beliefs is contagious. And if if I were Putin, I'd actually be a little afraid of it. If there's there's any, uh, you know, previously the Soviets were trying to corrupt the the American culture but American culture is now capable of corrupting other cultures and I'm I'm afraid that I have lived in the UK during the period that the UK has become infected uh, it is a kind of illness and and it it spreads very rapidly and uh, and the UK is is now sick. It's sick with it. And it's, you know, it's obviously it's, it's spread throughout the Anglosphere. And I, I feel confident it is spreading into continental Europe. Uh, The French like to think that they are immune to it, but they're not. It's already there. It's already in pockets. It's already fashionable in universities.
2: There's been some interesting research lately within the U.S. on... Uh, young people who grow up uh, in primarily English speaking households versus immigrant households in which English is not the dominant language. And what was interesting there is that young people who don't speak English are actually happier and have you know, score higher on life satisfaction and are generally less anxious and less depressed than uh, children who are raised with English in the household. And one possible uh, interpretation of this is that, you know, when you're relentlessly exposed to American culture. English-speaking media and so forth, this this actually does demoralize you and sort of undermine your sense of confidence and well-being, whereas if you are not consuming so much English-speaking content and you're sort of in your little ethnic enclave and pockets that are sort of isolated from American culture, that may actually be better for your mental health and well-being.
0: But but not spectator TV, I should add. Uh, <laughs> sure. But um, right, right. Uh, lastly, actually, I'll ask both of you this question. Lastly, um, uh, a lot of Christians uh, uh, see this phenomenon. They see progressivism as a sort of substitute religion. A lot of non-Christians starting to regard it as a substitute religion. I wonder to what extent you blame uh, what's happening on the the decline of Christianity in the Western Hemisphere and the decline of sort of uh, ideas of truth um, and so on. And are we running out of the kind of moral capital uh, that religion gave us for
1: so long um, you know that's that's become a kind of standard I don't want to accuse you of saying things that are cliches but no, it's all right it has become a cliche actually um, that the the whole explanation for the uh, rage of progressivism has to do with the fact that we don't have uh, established religion, Uh, to nearly the degree we used to, and that there is some kind of religious need psychologically in people that will fasten on to something uh, in lieu of um, having a a well-defined faith, they'll they'll find something else. And there's clearly something to that. Um, My frustration on that point is that I was raised uh, as a Presbyterian, and I didn't Fancy being Presbyterian from about the age of eight, and I don't like to think that the only alternative to um, being crazed with progressive, uh, you know, excessive thoughts uh, is is necessarily another set of beliefs, some of which are a little weird and depend on stories that are I regard as a little dubious. Um, why do we have to have either an established religion, which, you know, I the, of the sort that I rejected when I was a kid, or you have to go nuts politically? I mean, surely, surely there's a way of believing in something and having principles and having some faith not uncritical but some faith in your own society and in your own future why do you have to believe something stupid necessarily is there some genetic need to believe fairy stories of some sort i i i, I don't think so i don't i don't think that's the only way
0: well at the risk of seeming delicate i wouldn't necessarily say fairy stories but um I, Robert, I think maybe what the, what I was trying to get at is is relativism. You know, is does seem to be uh, the moral universe post Christianity in the West, and relativism is very susceptible to the progressivism we're talking about that is destructive and that does make people very unhappy and and self harming.
2: Right. Well, I think there was a, there. I mean, there was a, a a brief period of relativism in the in the twentieth century. Uh, as as religion was on the wane and relativism was a useful instrument to undermine people's belief in religion uh but i i actually do think that to some extent people need to have some sort of overarching belief it doesn't i i'm not sure if it necessarily has to be religious or political but they need belief in something whether it's a sort of a civic culture or belief in some kind of stable traditional values or some kind of confidence in in the country and in its uh, its customs but um In the absence of any sort of moral order, uh, people, you know, sort of uh, moral entrepreneurs can step in and start to tell people what they should be thinking or what they should be feeling or what they should be believing. And so after a prolonged period of relativism, uh, some political activists stepped in and sort of gave people a list of ideas that they should be believing in and a list of norms that they should be adhering to. And a lot of people had no argument against it. And... You know, they were susceptible to it. And I think that is that that is at least part of the story of of what has happened, uh, especially as as religion has has declined. Um, It's possible that we can step out of this, but we would need to have some kind of story to replace it. I don't think that people can exist in a period of total moral relativism.
1: Yeah, the trouble with with moral relativism and and also with this progressive package They both slide denialism. I mean, that's what I was talking about. the, The progressive package doesn't really have any positive content. And you were talking, Rob, about, you know, something to believe in, which is not just believing what is bad, but also what is good. And that's really what's missing. It's all dark. And therefore, it's right next door to... Nothing matters, everything is meaningless. Um life is stupid, we might as well be dead. I mean it it's not it's not a big step.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean I remember when I was in school, you know, it wasn't that long ago, the nineties and the two thousands. There was still a general, at least the school system that I, you know, the public school system in California, that there was this belief that uh, that the founding fathers were generally good, that Abraham Lincoln was good, George Washington. And, you know, there, of course, we, we have the sort of simplified, maybe the, the fairy tale version of the American founding, but it was still something that kids could generally unite around and, and believe in and have confidence in. And now today, now we're in the era of tear down all the statues and Abraham Lincoln actually wasn't such a good guy or he was actually just as bad as the Confederacy. And so now, even if you look at, uh, you know, patriotism or, or confidence in the country, those things are, are rapidly declining. And so naturally, what's left? Oh, well, there's the, the net zero, the climate change campaign. There's, uh, you know, maybe you can change your gender. Maybe there are X, Y and Z. All of these other sort of newfangled ideas that people can latch onto, and people can can be awarded some kind of moral plaudits for it uh, in a way that, you know, there's there's no other way to do so.
0: Well, I think we'll wrap it up there uh, on that not tremendously cheerful uh, note, but um, it's absolutely fascinating talking to you both uh, and thank you very much for coming on Spectator TV. Now, it has been almost two decades since New the banned hunting and it was a big debate at the time, lots of controversy um, but it appeared briefly during the 1990s that some kind of settlement, political settlement, had been reached on countryside pursuits. But as Will Moore, who joins me now, relates in his brilliant cover piece for the Spectator this week, uh, the, the war hasn't stopped. And in fact, over the last two decades, people who live in the countryside uh, feel that they their way of life has been targeted, is being targeted um, by a process which we can call more um, which is the word we use it more and more. It's a good word, of these there. it catches a lot. Yeah, it's sort like the new work. Uh, and uh, could you just sum up for uh, so, so the viewers, um, the various fronts on which this lawfare against countryside, rural pursuits yes. um, is happening. Of course. Well, <laughs> it, it's sort of coming from all sorts of different directions,
3: which is why it's very complicated. It's often very technical. And there's a lot of it. And what it essentially means is that uh, without making these pursuits explicitly illegal, you just make it so difficult that in, in many cases it becomes almost impossible. And that's done through a variety of methods, lots of changes to licensing, often last-minute, often extremely complicated changes, uh, just to make uh, all sorts of field sports um, extremely difficult. And, you know, you, 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 the argument could be made, you know, well, what's wrong with licensing? Lots of things require licensing. That doesn't mean that there's a, a sort of a covert campaign against field sports. But the, the reason that a lot of people I spoke to for, for this piece feel very differently uh, is twofold. One is execution and the other is intent. So to take execution first, uh, the, the example I start with in the piece are these changes to the licensing of the release of game birds in what are known as special, special protected areas in the country. And um, this was introduced by DEFRA and Natural England as a response to uh, the avian flu. And uh, it was sort of dropped in May, all these new changes, they, they, they left, leaving the shooting community completely scrambling around trying to, to file the, the new paperwork for the new licenses they're going to need in order to release their, their game boats. No consultation whatsoever, sort of no warning about it. And there are shoots that are sort of like and I know I speak to people in the piece who gamekeepers and so on, whose shoots are facing ruin because of this, and it sort of comes out of nowhere. It's incredibly clunky, sort of bureaucratic uh, incompetence, really. But the other, perhaps more important question, is one of intent. So. Are all these licensing changes being brought in because uh, people want sort of proper management? Or is it because they disapprove of the activity? And, um, I mean, the most explicit example of this is the in the devolved government of, of Wales, which is a Labour government, uh, Julie James, is the, the climate minister, she said, it is not my belief that, that a civilised society should kill uh, uh, a creature for leisure uh, or electivity. Now, that's explicitly saying that licensing here is not for, to, to try and help manage the countryside. It is because they... It's a moral judgment. She does not like what it is that these, pe- these people are doing, um, you know, and so therefore,
0: let's make it more difficult. Isn't the problem then uh, a more fundamental issue, which uh, New Labour did not really resolve in 2004? Um, which is that there are a lot of people in Britain who think that harming animals for fun or pleasure, mm. and even if there are ecological, environmental reasons for doing so, is wrong. And then there are a lot of other people on the other side, perhaps a diminishing force in British life, certainly in British politics, who think that it's an important part of country life and the way people live in the country. But that tension has not really been resolved, has it? No, it's so not much worse. But-
3: uh, but here's here's a sort of I think is a fundamental point when when hunting was banned in 2004 uh, when well, it was passed in 2004 and came to effect in 2005 the argument was not about people enjoying themselves the argument was it is cruel to the fox uh, the argument's now shifted it's now just as you put it people don't let the idea that people enjoy it so so are we allowed to have abattoirs are we allowed to have uh, butchers that kill uh, for meat as long as they're sort of miserable while they do it I mean you're, you you you're trying to we're talking about some legal restrictions here um it's a it's, if you're trying to get someone's intent or, so, or so someone's enjoyment out of an activity then that is a sort of restriction on on liberty at a certain point it's no longer about um cruelty to animals which i, I hope everyone can agree is is a is a bad thing
0: um well I, I mean i suppose it depends whether you think um killing an animal can ever not be be Well, okay if you take if you take the sort of maximalist position i actually sort of
3: I disagree, but I sort of respect that as a, as a sort of line of argument. The, and the people who go out to try and disrupt shoots or whatever, the sort of antis and the saboteurs, um, at least the shooting community, that, and they, they know where they stand, with those people. The thing which I, I, uh, I came across when I was speaking to all sorts of game, game gamekeepers and people involved in, in the world of field sports is that organisations that are, that are neutral, say they're neutral on shooting, such as Natural England, and the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, they say they're neutral on shooting. Um, people in the shooting world uh, do not feel that way uh, because of all the, the various sort of pressures that I've 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 outlined. Now, whether people in Natural England or RSPB are actively anti-shooting, that, I mean that that's something which I mean we can't we can't know. What I think though is certainly true is that there is an ideological. Um, Gulf here between the idea of what is conservation and and the proper methods of conservation. So for Natural England and the RSPB, they are uh, extremely interested in rewilding and rewetting that and and any other form of conservation. There's some sort of more traditional methods used by gamekeepers. I mean, a big controversial one is rotational heather burning, and uh, uh, which which Natural England and and RSPB do not approve of. Um, and so they just, regardless of motive, they 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 just do not see eye to eye on points such as this. And a lot of people in the shooting world are very, very fed up with it.
0: And bumbly underneath it, uh, as you suggest in your piece, is uh, a kind of lingering class war and a sense that um, countryside pursuits are purely enjoyed uh, by the other classes and by people who have a lot of land. Mm. Um, And as you said in that piece, uh, yes, uh, there are people with lots of land who like. The shoots, um hunting and shooting and fishing. Um, but there are also a lot of other people involved in it oh, yeah. who are effective in a lot of jobs that are involved. a lot of
3: jobs. It's it's a very big part of the rural economy, the working economy. And uh, you know, these are people who have often worked in land management um privately for, for decades. They know the land very well, they often know the best way of taking care of it. Um and if there were uh, if the sort of um cold war over field sports were to become hot again. Um, you know, these a lot of people would be very, very worried about their future and and their and their and their jobs. And in terms of the the sort of class war element which you just mentioned, um uh I think it's particularly true, of course, over over concerns about hunting. And um uh and Labour's uh environment, the shadow shadow environment minister said on on Boxing Day of last year, you know, with the Boxing Day hunts and so on, and he said he he wants Labour to ban. Trail hunting, which is when you have hunting with a um, a laid scent rather than any live quarry, because he says that, that that he that he believes it's often a smokes a smokescreen for illegal hunting for the, where the fox is killed. Um, but I think Labour should think very carefully about this because you, you would you really start legislating against something that might happen. So if you were to collect, if you were to go out with your hound uh, and and are, are you just making even the are you going to make the, that meeting itself illegal just because they 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 might kill a fox? Yes. Um, it's a sort of almost guilty
0: till proven innocent assumption at that point. Uh, and I suppose on the p- politics of it, uh, this is something which the Conservatives in the past have, have benefited from. There is apparent um, hostility towards countryside life, um, country life, I should say. Uh, and yet, as you point out, there's there's been two decades now. Of lawfare against countryside pursuits, which have been successfully persecuted in both countryside pursuits. Tories have not done anything to stop it, really, have they? So it's no. another issue in which people who would naturally be inclined to vote Conservative uh, are probably thinking, well, what's the point of supporting the Tories? A lot of people in the country
3: I think are not inherently very politically political people. They're quite sort of apolitical. They want to just be left alone with their pursuits. The reason they often vote Tory is not for any moment because they like the Tories. In fact, there is huge anger towards how the countryside has, um, been treated over the last two decades. The, the thing is they do, they do fear a Labour government more because they look at the devolved government in, in Wales, they look at the, SM, the SNP in Scotland, obviously not Labour, but sort of on, on the left, where there's also a lot of additional legislation and additional ways of making things uh, more difficult. And they see it as a sort of harbinger of what might come nationally um, if there is a Labour government. And it's why, you know, um, uh, Peter Mandelson, who I, I spoke to uh, for this piece, and he's he was sort of warning against this. He's saying, you know, Labour can't you sort of impose its kind of city ideas, its sort of majority city ideas on a rural minority because it just doesn't understand the rural, the rural way of life. And Labour should not be a sort of banning, finger-wagging, intolerant party if it wants to try and win over the country. William Moore, thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you very much. Let's turn our attention to America and the story of the Biden family, and in particular, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. Um, The international media, particularly the British media, I think, uh, tend to focus on the uh, Trump trials, and rightly so. It's a big story, Um, But bubbling underneath that story um, is this story of Hunter Biden. Um, I'm joined now by Ben Schreckinger, who is author of The Bidens, uh, Inside the First Family's 50-Year Rise to Power. Uh, He also works for Politico. Ben, I'm very glad that uh, we've got to talk to you because quite often uh, when we hear Americans talking about the Hunter Biden story, um, they are obviously partisan obviously Republicans or Trump supporters who are banging on about um, Hunter Biden and the Biden crime family and so on. Um, and as a result, I suspect uh, the significance of this story has perhaps been lost. And I don't know about your own politics. I don't want to get into that. Um, but you've approached this story as a reporter in your book and in your work. Um, and I think it's, fair to say, it is a very interesting and potentially extremely significant story.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, during the 2020 campaign, especially, uh, Democrats really focused on uh, Rudy Giuliani's attempts to make hay out of Hunter Biden's business dealings, uh, contacts he had with people affiliated with Russian intelligence, all of that. Uh, and that was very much the impression that people on the left side here in the States had of this story that it was sort of uh, uh, ginned up out of nothing by Donald Trump cronies. Uh, On the right, obviously, uh, this has been a very big story and a very big focus for years and years. Um, I I do think now, especially in recent months uh, with Hunter Biden entering this guilty plea, uh, with House Republicans uh, getting testimony from a number of people, Uh, including a couple of uh, IRS agents uh, involved in the case who who said there were irregularities. Uh, It's becoming a little bit less of a a purely partisan um, lens that people are bringing to this. Uh, I think the press here in the U.S., um, outside of the conservative press, has been paying more attention to this uh, in recent months. And I think that's only going to continue as long as Joe Biden is a candidate for president. Tell us a little bit
0: about that plea deal, Ben, because uh, it seems to me there are different stories here. There's the Hunter plea deal, which relates to a a, a case about a minor gun misdemeanor, which appeared to be letting him off the hook for various misdemeanors. Um, And a lot of Republicans were very angry about that at the time when it happened just over a, a month ago. And then there's the ongoing investigation into his past and business dealings. And that might bring in Joe Biden. How are those two stories developing? And explain a little bit more, please.
4: Sure. Yeah, it, it's very messy. And, and the status, especially of the Justice Department investigation is uh, up in the air at this point. Uh, two weeks ago, there was a, a hearing uh, in Delaware. Uh, Hunter Biden was going to plead, plead guilty to some tax crimes uh, and get a what's called a pretrial diversion on a gun charge. Um, that deal was sort of thrown back to the drawing board by the judge. Uh, There appeared to be a whack of uh, a meeting of the minds between Hunter Biden's side and prosecutors over what that deal meant. Hunter Biden's side believed and and was telling people that this uh, plea deal would signal the end of Justice Department investigations uh, into Hunter Biden, interest in Hunter Biden. Uh, But prosecutors said, well, actually, investigations into Hunter Biden remain ongoing. Uh, They wouldn't say what those investigations pertain to. Uh, and there was disagreement about whether this plea deal uh, would essentially end those investigations or not, or perhaps it's just one investigation. Um, So the judge said, look, you need to go back to the drawing board. Uh, There was also issues about um, the way in which it was structured, whether it was being structured in a way to prevent the judge from uh, being able to provide the oversight that she wanted. Uh, So we should find out soon uh, whether or not they're able to, to piece that uh, plea deal back together. Uh, and then in the meantime, separate from that, uh, House Republicans are pursuing their own investigations uh, of Hunter Biden. Uh, obviously, they're very focused on, on trying to connect what Hunter's been doing to his father, his father's office. Uh, they've had a, a parade of witnesses come forward, including business partners of Hunter Biden, a couple of uh, IRS investigators involved on, in that tax uh, tax case that Hunter's trying to tie up right now. Uh, and so all indications that, is that they're going to be keeping this uh, front and center uh, in their agenda uh, for the foreseeable future, as long as Joe Biden is running for president.
0: Uh, and Kevin McCarthy, the Republican House Speaker, has suggested uh, there might be a, 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 a trial into impeachment proceedings. And that's not the same as an impeachment, as I understand it, but uh, that 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 could happen quite soon. Um, and the White House keeps saying um, that this is a, a an evidence-free uh, wild goose chase and, and dismissing it quite um, aggressively. Um, however, it's not really, is it? I mean, you've written this book about the Biden family, and there is no denying that there are lots of uh, legitimate areas of concern about um, how the Biden family operated. And it seems to me you had hunter biden and joe biden's brother james or jim uh operating the business side of the biden family operation while uh joe and uh hunter's brother beau who sadly died uh were very much in the political field um to what extent do you think it was uh, a family operation a family grift if you like
4: yeah well i think uh it's very clear that this is a family that's very close on an interpersonal level, and it's also clear that uh, the Biden family uh, has been integral uh, over the decades to Joe Biden's political operation, political life, as advisors, as the people literally running campaigns, including his sister Valerie, who was a campaign manager for, uh, for several of his Senate campaigns. Uh, his brother James uh, was the chief fundraiser on his first Senate campaign. Uh, and then after that, you do have this pattern where various members of the Biden family engage in business deals uh, that are raising questions going back to the 1970s in the papers about whether they're getting favorable terms on loans, for example, because of who their brother is, um, whether they're invoking, there are certainly allegations of business partners, uh, some of them made in, in court proceedings, that they invoked their political clout as reasons that they would be able to land contracts, land business from people like uh, labor, labor union leaders. Um, and what remains unclear uh, is how much Joe knew about this. He said he's never discussed, uh, his family's business dealings with them. Uh, you've had people, uh, involved in those business dealings saying, well, that's not quite true. Tony Bobulinski has come forward and said, I, at least in general terms, uh, discuss some, some business dealings in China with Joe Biden, um, that I was engaging in with Hunter and James Biden. Um, you know, there's, there's, Not evidence. Uh, There's not, you know, anything like a smoking gun that Joe Biden has taken an official action uh, because of or at the behest of uh, a business partner of his relatives. Um, But certainly there are questions about uh, how much he should have known, uh, whether he should have gone further in discouraging this, uh, whether he should be publicly disavowing uh, some of these uh, deals that, that Hunter's engaged in. Uh, and so this is an issue that, that does not seem like it's going away for him.
0: And the latest big twist in the story is the testimony, congressional testimony of Devon Archer, who was a, a business partner of Hunter Biden, who has said that uh, Joe Biden would be on as many as 20, I think, calls, uh, business calls that Hunter Biden was making with uh, various often foreign people that he was doing business dealings with. Um, and Joe Biden was vice president at the time. Uh, and therefore, uh, even if he didn't say anything, even if there's no evidence of him saying anything that might have been inappropriate, the very fact that he was on those calls is pretty significant, is it not? And I think no amount of kind of de- democratic poo-pooing of it can can make that go away.
4: Yeah, it certainly shows that uh, Hunter Biden's intention uh, was to flaunt his access to his father uh to make him look like an attractive business partner often uh for people who were seeking uh a favorable reception in Washington DC um and another part of Devin Archer's testimony that stuck that stuck out to me uh related to a a dinner in 2015 at Cafe Milano which is a big DC gathering spot an Italian restaurant in Georgetown uh where when Hunter Biden's laptop materials first leaked, uh, there was a, a Burisma executive, Vadim Bozarski, uh, emailing around the time of this dinner to say, hey, Hunter, it was great to meet your father. Thank you so much. Something along those lines. Uh, and there was emails about this dinner in in which uh, Bozarski was on the guest list. There's talk about getting Joe Biden there. Um, and it's been a whole saga establishing whether or not uh, those two cross paths as, as the these emails suggested. Uh, the White House has said no meeting took place. Uh, other people at the meeting have come forward at this dinner and said, we don't have any recollection of Pazarsky being there. Uh, Devin Archer testified under oath that, uh, yes, Pizarski was at this dinner as well, uh, that what these emails uh, suggest happened didn't back happen. Uh, and so there, there are issues like this uh, where uh, we're not getting uh, consistent answers. Uh, from the White House, for example, uh, answers that are consistent with what other people are saying and, and what these emails are showing about the extent of intermingling uh, of Joe Biden with Hunter Biden's business partners when he was vice president. Uh,
0: and it looks as though the Republicans are pushing towards uh, an impeachment. Um, do you think that will happen?
4: I, I, I hate to make predictions about the future, but... Uh, I would not be shocked if they followed through on this. Uh, I would be shocked if uh, Joe Biden were impeached, removed by the Democrat-controlled Senate. Uh, that seems very unlikely. Uh, but this is another tool that House Republicans uh, have to to keep the focus on this, keep the spotlight on this, uh, and keep the spotlight off of Donald Trump's trials. Uh,
0: I suppose, and forgive me if I'm peddling a Trumpist talking point, but I suppose one theory might be that if impeachment were to come up, the uh, a Democratic Senate might actually impeach Biden if by the time of the next election uh, his uh, public performances have become so bad, uh, he is getting very old, that there there is a desire among the Democratic Party um, to see him gone, and that the Hunter story might be a good pretext for doing that.
4: Well, wow. I have not heard that theory floated. It's intriguing. Um, I do think that there are... Uh a lot of measures short of supporting a a conviction and, and an impeachment proceeding that, that members of a, of a president's party would have, uh, to nudge them aside if they wanted to. Uh, so I personally doubt that, that it would come to that. Um, but you know, we're a long way away from election day and there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of moving pieces. Uh, and so fireworks of some sort, uh, in this election are almost guaranteed. Ben, we'll leave it there, but thank you very much for joining
0: us. Now, let's talk about e-bikes or electronic bicycles, which seem to be a divisive topic. Peter Hitchens has written a typically forthright piece in the magazine this week about how much he dislikes them, uh, and I'm joined by him now. Hello, Peter. Morning. Uh, I'm also joined by Henry down the line, Henry from the Financial Times, Henry Mance, uh, who is a fan, a supporter of e-bikes. Um, Peter, I'll start with you because you wrote the piece. You're uh, an enthusiast for cycling, uh, as you say in
5: the piece, but you really don't like e bikes yes, they're a fraud. Uh, they, look, they look like bikes. They make people think that they're riding bikes, and they, they, they also are allowed into the cycle lanes, which it took decades of campaigning uh, to get, in which is supposed to be free of motor vehicles, and they are motor vehicles. They're bike-shaped objects, but they're actually motorbikes. And many of them can go extremely fast, and many of them are very heavy indeed. And so the whole battle, which took, which I took part in, which took perhaps forty years to get special spaces on the roads for for human-powered, lightweight, silent, clean bicycles, has now been tossed to one side. So these horrible things can go whizzing and whining along along bike tracks at excessive speeds, and we aren't safe anymore. And you think people should have a licensed to to ride. well they are mo- they are motor vehicles and all motor vehicles in this country until very recently uh, until until i think grant chaps was was the secretary of state for transport had to had to be ridden by people who were licensed and now this has been dropped both for e-bikes and for their hideous cousins the e-scooter uh, with results which i think will carry on bothering us for many years to come and people will wonder in times to come why we we're so stupid is to make these things legal and to allow people to ride them without any serious qualification. I have a motorcycle license, uh, and it's quite a hard thing to get. And they're actually quite hard things to ride. And I think if you're going to ride a motorbike, you should, uh, you should learn how to do it and get a, get a license. Have you, have you been on an e-bike? Have you tried it? No, I, they, they give me red miss. As soon as I see them, I can't see any points in them. Uh, if, I want to, if, if I wanted to use motor vehicles, I would. But I deliberately gave up motor vehicles as far as I could many years ago. And why should I start doing so? Because someone's produced a motor vehicle that looks like a bicycle and isn't. Henry, you are mentioned
0: in this piece. Uh, I think you are described uh, as uh, being typical of metropolitan trendies who ride e-bikes. How do you respond to this charge?
6: I mean, I take it as a huge compliment, Freddie, and um, rarely. But I I think Peter's problem is that he's too young and... uh, and fit and uh and full of energy, and he doesn't quite appreciate the you know the role that e bikes can play it's actually quite nice to discuss this topic because, as you say it's very divisive, but it's nice to discuss it with someone with, like peter who who gets the principle and who is on board with changing changing what our cities look like rather than someone who who just wants to continue throwing more cars down the same streets, which uh I think has had lots of uh bad effects and and uh really whether you're on the left or the right, there should be a, a good case for uh, cycling and active, active travel being a bigger part than, than more SUVs, etc. But I think um, I'm, Peter's wrong to say that these are basically motorbikes. The real difference with knee bike is you still have to pedal to get any support from the motor. So you can't just sit on it and whiz up a hill. Um, but uh, and, and, and these bikes, although they're a bit sturdier than the pedal bike you might be used to, they're not a motorbike, right? A, a line bike, which people will see around London, weighs about 35 kilograms, a motorbike would be 10 times that. And, you know, you know a Volkswagen Golf is, is over a tonne. So really, these things do still belong in the segregated cycle lane. And what I think they really do is open up cycling to a whole range of people who don't have Peter's energy, who uh, live on a hill, you know, London is not Amsterdam. Um, you know, we can't, we can't change the geography, we need to get more people cycling and offering them a bit of assistance, making it a bit less hard work is one way of doing that
5: except that it isn't. I, I, you, you may have to actually turn the pedals to get an e-bike to go uphill, but you're not doing what I'm doing when I go uphill. Uh, I often have to stand on the pedals to go uphill, uh, but it, I know that it's extremely valuable exercise. It's sweet of you to call me young. I am, in fact, nearly 72. Uh, but the, the, the truth is that if I am fit, uh, then it's because I have been doing the hard business of pedaling a, a powerless bicycle for many years, often uphill. And if people want fitness from bicycles, they have to do that. And there's no point to taking any, any e-bicycle. I'm overtaken by, by, by them all the time by people who obviously haven't been, as I've been cycling for decades, uh, who just get on them and can achieve speeds without any real serious effort. It takes me a really major effort to get to. They are not in, even remotely comparable in their ability to provide exercise to, to, to proper bicycles. And they may not be as heavy as motorbikes. I agree with you about that. But the, the ordinary ones, the ones I'm constantly picking up from where they're dumped on the pavement, were two and a half times as much as an ordinary bicycle. And the, the, the great big cargo machines uh, can be about five times as much. And these are, really are very powerful motor vehicles. But they are motorbikes because they're bicycles which have a motor. They're possibly more comparable to the things which were actually called mopeds. Probably forty or fifty years ago, the word is now widely misused, and the were the word motor-assisted bicycles. But you had to have a license for those, and again, you could you you had to pedal them, but the pedals did a little bit, but the the motor did most of it. Let's not pretend the motor is doing most of the work. Without the motor, the things would be simply too heavy to ride.
6: Yeah, what I sense is, I, I think when anesthesia came along in the nineteenth century, there were some doctors who, who opposed it on the basis that you know people should suffer, and it was a good idea to. To get a sense of their pain, that was helpful for the medical process. Uh, I th- think some of that may still be around in in the way we approach childbirth, but and um, uh, and that's kind of the what the attitude that I see seeping through from some uh, you know traditional cyclists towards e bike the idea that cycling should be a very active thing. It should you know it should be hard on a rainy day. It should be hard to go up a hill. This will get you fit. And the problem is that a lot of people just haven't warmed to that. I mean, I, I'm very happy to go out on a normal bike as well as an e-bike. I enjoy it, but a lot a lot of people just haven't wanted to do that. They've got in their cars instead. And so, how do we get them out of their cars? We offer them a slightly easier cycling experience. Well, you
5: offer you there's many ways of getting people out of cars. The principal one, which of course the Swiss are very good at, is providing first-rate public transport that gets people out of their cars. You're never going to get an awful lot of people immediately to start cycling. What a lot of people don't realise is, I think. The, the Dutch, until about the late 50s and early 60s, were just as car mad as we were, and their cities were just as car congested. They took an actual decision as a government and a people to turn away from this and to promote cycling. And it's taken many, many years to get to where they are now. And of course, they have the curse of the e bike too, which is strongly opposed by many Dutch cyclists because they don't want these things in cycle lanes. But the truth is that it, it, w- it will take a long time. I'm not, it's nice it to do with anaesthetic. And I, one of the reasons I don't ride a motorbike anymore is that I, I, I had a very bad accident on one. And I, I, I was lying by the roadside in considerable pain. I was very glad when I got anaesthetic. It's not remotely comparable uh, to, the, to the minor discomfort you feel when you pedal a bicycle uphill. It's silly and non-comparison. So let's, let's not have it. People, it's true that cycling is a bit difficult. And, and quite a lot of people find things that, that are a bit difficult uh, too hard to do. Well, OK, let them, uh, if, they, if, if they want to ride motor vehicles, ride on the road. I don't mind if they want to ride these things about on the road. It's if they come whizzing along on cycle tracks, and you're supposed to go at 15 miles an hour, and they're supposed to be governed by little widgets which don't let them go any faster. It's horribly widely known that these things can be tweaked, and you can can go far faster than that, and everybody knows that they do. And so here you have, on cycle lanes, objects which look like bicycles, tearing by at perhaps 30, even 35, 40 miles an hour, very heavy. If they hit you, you'll be very badly hurt. And the whole purpose of the cycle lane, to segregate the vulnerable cyclist, a, 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 a human frame on a, on a small lightweight machine from heavy traffic, has been undermined in a matter of, I think, two years. It's gone from, from bliss being on cycle lanes in London to being a, a, an absolute nightmare. Is, Henry, Is the problem, not just what's going on in the lanes, but
0: the clutter uh, outside the spectator's office at the moment. There are three human forests, which is one of the rental uh, systems, if you like, of e-bikes in London. Uh, And that's what people object to the most. I suppose the question applies to both of you is that they do clutter up pavements. Uh, There are e-bikes everywhere. And there are also e-scooters everywhere. Um, is is, Is that a problem, do you think?
6: Yeah, and I think that it, we should hunt very hard for the three spectator journalists who have left those bikes outside, uh, outside the office. Um, but no, I, 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 think, I think you're right. And I think when these new technologies come along, they do bring teething troubles. I mean, do you remember when mobile phones came along and everybody was talking very loudly in train carriages? And it seemed like our future would be a complete hell of li- listening to other people's mobile phone conversations. And we sort of developed norms around that. And anyone, everyone texts now anyway, so no one, no one ever picks up the phone. Um, and I, I, I do think that some of the complaints around e-bikes are are things that we could manage a bit better. In, in, in Paris, and, and Peter knows the case very well, but in, in Paris, they've just had a referendum at, um, on banning not e-scooters, but e-scooter rentals on the basis that you know, people who own their own e-scooter, they tend to to you know, be fairly responsible with it and they you know, stick to the rules and they don't have two or three people going on the same scooter and they don't leave it lying around on the pavement. But people who rent one from a company like Lime, uh, they they may be a bit more um, carefree about it and a bit sort of uh, not such good citizens. And I think the clutter is a real problem. If you're in a, if you're in a wheelchair or if you're trying to uh, just walk down a pavement, um, then then they're a nuisance. So you know, finding a way in which there's designated parking areas and people have to pay very high fees if they don't leave it in those parking areas, that seems to me the way forward. But it doesn't seem to me an insoluble problem that you should throw out e-bikes altogether
5: well why were they licensed in the first place they were completely illegal until quite recently and suddenly there's an explosion of them uh, it's not a question of throwing them out the, the the real argument is why why we took this step uh, which is still in my view reversible and whether it was wise to do it's not just i have to say on cycle layers that these things would be found i was quite near uh, bracken house your wonderful offices a few months ago and i was nearly sent to my reward by an e-bike which must have been doing 30 miles an hour along the pavement in the city of London. Uh, and the, 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 I, fortunately, my, I, I still have enough of the sense of hearing to, to notice it coming, but it was a very close-run thing. And that's the second time in my life that I've come close to being erased by, by an e-bike. They are dangerous. And they, as I say, they are not properly licensed. They're not properly regulated. Anything of this level of danger in any other area of life would be regulated, and so it's licensing. These things are just allowed out everywhere. And, and they are growing in number. Every day there are more of them. And if, if nobody does anything about it soon, we are going to regress it. And, and, and here I am just, just making this point and also trying to get uh, cycling campaigners who have accepted them in a rather open-mouthed way to see that there is a huge difference between a human-powered silent machine and a, a, heavy, a heavyweight motorbike capable of 30 or 40 miles an hour. And they shouldn't allow them to be mixed up and they, they shouldn't be allowed on cycle lanes, and they also shouldn't be allowed on payments. One other thing which we need to do, of course, is to is to introduce a fantastic idea in this country, which I, I think other countries have, which is called a police force. Uh, you hire people uh, to enforce the law, and you make them walk around the streets stopping people who break the law. We don't have one of these, uh, at least if we have. I haven't seen any trace of it. But if you have one of those, then we can obviously sort this thing out. On that emphatic note, I think uh, should... I,
6: I, I actually uh, agree with you on, on that. That you know, where is the enforcement? Where is the enforcement of bad driving everywhere? But let me give you an example. I mean, I I have a normal bike which I will take uh, occasionally into the office, but I will take around town. And then if I want to go somewhere with my kids, then I put them on the back of a cargo bike. They get strapped in, and it's only possible don't, don't with a motor. Let's not get into... started
0: on cargo bikes. No, let's, not. let's not do that. That's a whole other but, debate. Don't... We'll do that in the next, uh, the next edition. But Henry and Peter, thank you very much uh, for coming on Spectator TV. Um, it's an enjoyable debate. Now let's talk about sourdough. Uh, Judy Bindle, who joins us here, a, a much-loved Spectator contributor, uh, has written a piece, and it's on our website, called Just Say No to Sourdough. And the stand first is Put It in the Bin. Uh, and this piece has gone bananas on the internet, I think it's fair to say. It might be our most read piece of the year so far. Uh, and it's a vicious attack, really on sourdough bread. Um, let's start with the obvious question. What's your problem with sourdough? Everything.
7: Look, first of all, I'm delighted that it's doing so well, but sometimes I put huge amounts of time and effort, blood, sweat and tears writing about awful violence against women and girls, Terrible unsolved crimes. And sourdough does better than that.
0: Yeah. I'm going to become a food critic. You're not better. saying you did not put an enormous amount. Of huge yeah.
7: amount. But this is actually quite funny because it's been brewing in my head for a long time. And I've been kicking off about it with my friends, in restaurants, even in bakeries. High-end bakeries where I live in Crouchon, End, Where everywhere I look there's just sourdough people asking for sourdough. Restaurants with different cuisines, all serving it. And so my problem with sourdough, twofold. First, I don't like its taste or texture, which is pretty kind of basic. And secondly, it's become a little bit like, I suppose, 1986 um, in East Berlin, before the wall came down, where you were queuing for bread and there was one type of bread and that was it. This is East Berlin, in 1986, yes. it's colonised the entire bread world. I'm old enough to remember the kiwi f- fruit fad in the 1980s. Every single dish that you ordered in every restaurant had a slice of this abomination on top of it. Ugly, it tasted vile, and it was just seen as something that you couldn't serve a meal without. And then all of a sudden it dropped off the radar and everybody went back to rightly so hating kiwi fruit. With sourdough, it was different. Because obviously it was going to be a type of bread that some people would really like. It suits their palate. It suits why and how they eat bread. But during lockdown, and there was a big yeast shortage in 2020, the recipe went viral around all of these bored people working from home or furloughed and had too much time in their hands. And it was, guess what? You can make this type of bread the type of bread that you get in these posh, very upper middle class, you know, North London bakeries without yeast. So that then did the rounds on Instagram and people were no longer posting their photographs of their holidays and their meals out in restaurants and their nights stocious in bars. And so all of a sudden we started to see these really ugly pictures of overbaked crusted bread with massive cracks in them and people holding them out like some burned offering and even bringing them around and leaving them on the doorstep because of course we couldn't you know social distancing I opened my door once and there was a loaf of bread and a text message from a friend saying thought you'd like this and I thought well okay I've never liked this stuff but how kind of her to do this yeah so I tried to eat it with soup no chance because it's so hard and the crust is so uncompromising that you can dip it in soup, the soup just falls off it back into the bowl, it won't absorb it, so I tried to dip it in a bit of olive oil and had it with some snacks. That wouldn't work because it won't absorb the olive oil. And of course, trying to make a sandwich with it, you would honestly need a jaw this size, and you would be chewing it forever, and then you'd need to go to the dentist, and it was locked down and there were no dentists open. So I thought maybe after lockdown, it will start to get unpopular maybe people that have had enough, it's actually got even more stratospherically
0: yes. popular amongst people. Why? Well, I think I could answer that question a little bit uh, because your piece hurt my feelings slightly because I am, as you would put it, a, a bread bro. I'm a bread bro. But you don't look like
7: one, to be fair.
0: I've never tried to be a kind of hipster or anything like that. But I, what happened is a few months ago, uh, I went to a friend's house and we had some bread in the morning uh, and I said, this is very delicious, and she said, oh, I'll give you some of my starter, which, as you know, as you've said, and piece is, the, is the, the, the mother culture. Yeah. Uh, so she gave me some, and I put it in the cart, and I didn't really think I was going to actually use it. I was, I just tell you. But then, quite bored that evening, I decided to give it a go, and I realised it's actually incredibly easy, uh. and you get a lot of compliments for doing that, something that's incredibly easy. Uh, and I also think, looking after the mother of the starter... Is a bit like gardening; it has its own pleasure because you're sort of you looking after a live culture. Oh, but anyway, as a result, I, I did. I've actually brought because I do bring it into the office. Uh, oh dear, and you don't To make, do you? To make uh, oh a no, here's he prepared it. earlier. And so I'm not sure we've ever done this on Spec TV before. But here is a. It's not going to look very uh, nice. But here is here is some sourdough bread that I've made. I'm going to cut
7: This is. I'm here under. False pretenses. I was butter. not told that this was part of yeah. my punishment. And then do you want butter? I will try a little bit of butter, because that's the only way that it might actually slip yeah.
0: down. In... Yeah, OK, we'll put lots of butter on it, and then you don't have to be bored of it. But just have a taste. I you will have, have a taste. Because with... you you're complaining about how hard the crust is. Well,
7: you know, the thing is that what I found was when I was eating sourdough is that the taste of blood doesn't really go well with bread, and that's what was happening. I actually had a mouth injury. Thank you very much. I had a mouse injury.
0: She had one covered from it.
7: actually have cut here on my lip from trying to chew a bit of sourdough that a colleague bought me. Yes. Thinking that I would like it because everyone else does. Okay.
0: Hey, days. You've changed your line completely. I can't wait for the reaction. It's very nice. Great. This is like Paul Hollywood reviewing um a cake.
7: It's very nice, but no disrespect. I'm taken. This is very different from the high-end bakery sort, better of course. Thank you. Where you have to take a chisel to get through to it, where your bread knife buckles. Yes. And where you cannot possibly chew the in- the, the the contents of that in any fewer than, say, 10 solid minutes yeah. and two lost fillings. So that, I would just say, is a nice loaf of bread. Why can't they all make it like yours?
0: There we go. Maybe I should have done a bakery. It.
7: But I think that they want the masochistic. See, that, that's where I think the machismo comes in. I think that they want the massive, thick, heavy, dark, cracked crust. I think they want the huge, dense insides because... It's, you know, it's a bit like the kind of massive ribeye steaks that some men get really into. Yeah. You, know, you see them in steakhouses where they order the huge 900-gram piece of steak with a huge bone going through it, and they're chewing away for hours and drinking a red wine you could slice in half. I think that's part of that eating culture.
0: It's still a streak of misandry here in that it's, it's things that men tend to fixate. Without question. Like I mean, look... yeah, like brewing beer, for instance. And you're right oh, yeah. that men got obsessed with... Beer. Well, a lot of men get very obsessed with making beer. And uh, there was this big fan for hoppy putting You had lots of hops in your beer. And beer, it took it to such extreme yeah. uh, that some beer was just revolting.
7: I think I say in the article that it's a bit like the dude bros. You really are not one of those. Uh, first first of all, you're, you're much in. nicer. You have a much tidier appearance than these guys. They use beard oil... And they have man buns. And they look like 18th century carpenters, right? Like these men. Man. And they also like the really extreme chilli-infused cocktails. They're like kimchi and fermented stuff, like fermented to next door and back. Yeah, and so, so they go in for these extremities. You're absolutely right. And I think that's how sourdough has become a parody of itself. That, to me, tastes like a nice slice of Greek
0: country bread.
7: You know, it, it's it's not... What, to be honest, it's not sour.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe I'm doable. But thank you very much for trying it and for being so polite. You can go ahead and throw up that. <laughs> it's my pleasure. It's a nice, tasty piece of bread. On that delicious note, I think we'll end Spectator TV for this week. Thank you very much indeed for watching. Don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Do that by clicking that subscribe button and then the bell icon. And we'll see you again next week.